Hi, Paul Scanlon here. Thanks for taking the time to click on my podcast. I want to spend time focusing on my primary passions of leadership, personal development, communication, growing big people, and I hope that these podcasts really help and add value to your life and to your journey. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to read to you from 1 Kings 14 to 19 uh, NIV version and explain to you what it is in this passage that I'm after uh, talking to you about in this session. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city or tribe of Israel to build me a temple. But I have chosen David to rule my people. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build me a temple, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build it, but your son Solomon will build it. On March the 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King, about a month before his assassination, preached a sermon from this very passage that we're reading now. He preached it at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Three of the generations of his family previously had worshipped at that church. His father and grandfather had pastored at that church. And he spoke from that passage about having things in your heart that you know you will never see finished and how God loves that about us. That would be true for Nelson Mandela or for Gandhi or other standout figures in history. That principle would be true. I want to speak to you about the cathedral in your heart. The cathedral in your heart and I'll explain to you what I mean by that as we progress with this idea this passage that I just read to you inspired me hugely in about 2004 as Anthony mentioned earlier our church went through a drastic radical reinvention in the late 90s our church then was about 25 years old Um, by English standards doing well we would be about six. 100, 700 people, we planted 20 other churches. We had our own purpose-built in 1989, moved into a purpose-built 700-seater uh, with um, adjoining facilities and offices and so on, five acres of land that we sat that building on in the inner city, doing well in many ways. I mean, you know, when the average size church in England is 20 people, that's the average statistic in our country of 20 people. Anything, you know, 100 plus really is a huge church in our country. So to be 700, you know, my point is, was, was great by, by church-going trends and standards in Europe and in our country. Um, but I realized 25 years in, and I've been involved since the beginning, our church was quietly dying. We had a terminal illness. 
Um, but no one seemed to be aware of it. And I knew that the church was growing ever inward and we were losing connection with the unchurched. And even though we sang every single week like we all do about changing our world for Jesus and we prayed for the lost and we interceded for the lost and we prophesied over our community and we were affected emotionally even by the plight of lost people. It's funny how you can do all of that and yet not talk to your neighbors about Christ. There was no, there was no transference of all of that to something simple like, like bringing people to church. Inviting people to church is an anti-cultural thing to do in our country. So I am aware that it's not easy to invite people to do something that is not part of their mentality at all. It's not part of their belief system, not part of their heritage. I was very aware of that in trying to build something significant in our country for God. But by 25 years in, we had settled. Uh, The problem is that we were having a great time. We had great preaching, great worship, uh, great relationships, a, a great building, great facility, great families. That's the problem. Now every box that you die in is shaped like a coffin. Sometimes the box that you die in is shaped like a present with a ribbon on, so no one knows anything bad's happening. Many churches die because they, they die whilst having a great time, not realizing that having a great time is not the idea. That reaching the unchurched is the idea, and that was once you and once me, that someone came after. We were the one that was missing from the 99 that were gathered. And Jesus made it clear that was his priority, the one that was still missing. And we'd forgotten that. And, and, and because we sang about reaching the lost and prayed for the lost and were concerned about the lost, I think you lull yourself into believing you're making a difference. When you're actually not. So we had virtual reality outreach, virtual reality difference making. Every Sunday was like taking a flight in a flight simulator. Because in our theology, in the lyrics of our songs, we changed the world for Jesus. But actually we weren't changing anything. And I became aware of this trend and this pattern. And so in the late 90s, I began to address that with the church and basically started a new church inside an old church, which is not good for your health, I can tell you that now. Um, I actually believe that the reinvention, the redemption, the reengineering of existing churches in many parts of our world is going to be more important than starting new churches. Because there are thousands of churches all across this country that if we could rescue them, they would come back to life and they already have a footprint, a building, an influence, a name, some money, maybe property, stuff that takes you 10 years to get as a new church, they already have. And yet all of that is useless if the people that are involved in that church have lost connection with what most matters which is reaching the unchurched. And this became true of our church. And so I began to radically reinvent and re-engineer the church. And one of the drastic things I did was start bussing people in from some of the worst council estates we call them in England. I don't know what you call them here. Projects, they call them in America, where the poor live. These are high crime areas in our city. They're like ghettos. But tens of thousands of people live on them in our country. And in our city of Bradford, 
Some of the worst council estates in the country, some of the top five worst in the country are in our city. Because our church was white middle class people predominantly, which was part of the problem. So our demograph was not representative of the city. If you took a photograph of our congregation, went into our city and showed people a picture and said, where do you think this congregation is in our country? They would not have said our city. Our city is predominantly poor. It is multiracial. We had no black people in our church. We had no poor people in our church. We are predominantly white middle class. White middle class people need Christ like anyone else, but they're not the only people in town. So what we had was, we had the church in the city, but the city was not in the church, except in our theology. So in our theology, we were, of course, you know, reaching our city, but when you looked at the demograph of our congregation, the city was not here. And if you came to our church and didn't fit in your appearance or your background, your hairstyle, the clothes you wore, God help you if you came with tattoos and body piercings. Now they're trendy. Um, no one would say anything to you, but if looks could kill, you'd be dead and you wouldn't be back. And so we were scaring off these people who we were really supposed to be there for, but scared them off in a way that was subtle. Um, and of course, because, because I'm the pastor, it's hard for me to know that because I drive and park in my own spot. I go through a back door. Somebody brings me a coffee. I'm not out there amongst the people in the way that you are when you just come as a attender. Um, so sometimes as a pastor, you think you have a good finger on the pulse, but you don't. Um, so we began to drastically reinvent the church. And I'm busting in 500 people a week. I mean, these are crazy people. I'm busting in crazy people. These people were just nuts. And couldn't give a rip about us or church or God or our values. And I'm busting in. I mean, five, our church is only, you know, 650. I'm busting in as many again that were crazies. Um, and they were smoking and effing and blinding and stealing stuff. And it was just... And our church just went into meltdown. But one of the things that bothered me about our church... Because, you know, you, it's really difficult to tell a church we're sick when everybody feels well. It seems like an insult. It seems like rude and ungrateful to say, we're dying here, guys. Everybody was having a ball. But I knew that we were dying in the ways that really mattered. And we were turning inward. We were a religious club having a ball. And how do I tell that to the church? Because, because the things I want to fix, I was part of putting there myself. A lot of leaders in all walks of life struggle to reinvent because the things they're going to have to say we need to stop are what they themselves put there 10 years earlier, as it were. And it was needed then and valid then. But everything we do has a sell-by date on it. And if we don't keep upgrading what we do, then we stick on what we do too long. Too long. The indication that we've done a thing too long is that people start getting over-attached to styles, methods, ideas, personalities. And then when you touch it to change it, all hell breaks loose. Way beyond what you thought was there. 
because people get over-attached to things because we don't ring the changes enough. Well, that was our church 25 years in, and people were so protective of stuff that God didn't even care about at the end of the day because God cares about very few things when you boil it all down. We're like the Pharisees. We think he cares about lots of stuff, and Jesus said, you know what? It's a couple of things, really. Love God and love people. You'll be fine. But all this stuff about worship and who preaches and the way we do notices and the way we do media and where I sit and who I sit with and, and, and all this stuff, it doesn't matter. But it really matters to some people. In our church, because we wanted to be clear from a weakness in our country in the church historically of having weak leadership, anemic, limp-wristed, vicar kind of stereotype image was what the church had about leadership in our country. Nice service vicar, wet handshake at the door. I think what we did in the late 70s in the charismatic renewal awakening in our country in the early 70s, which is when I got saved, of strong male leadership, elders, apostles, prophets, was a huge response, I think, to fixing that weakness in the church. I understood the need for that. But it went too far, like these things I'm saying. So we had the elders every Sunday, all the elders sat on the platform, um, letting you know that there's government here, there's rule here. It was all male, of course. Um, And they were the most miserable-looking bunch of people, (laughs) really. And what I realized 25 years in is that each of these elders had their own fan base, And if the elders, by their physical appearance and facial expression, didn't approve of something, their fan base in the room would check out. So it was this control thing going on, as they're controlling their own little group in the church, um, by by their amening or not amening, by their worshiping or looking bored. So one of the first things I did was I said to all these guys in the late 90s, I want you all off the platform. Go sit with your wives. We don't need you up here. Those days are gone. If ever that was a need, it's not anymore. We all know we've got leaders. We don't need to broadcast it. We're not, it doesn't matter. So, so moving, moving from here to there is a few meters. But all hell broke loose when I asked them to move because I realized their whole identity was attached to sitting there. And I thought, if this is how bad that is, I've got far worse things than this in my mind to do. So if we've got all hell breaking loose over that, and I'm thinking I'm going to bust people in, I knew it would not be an easy ride. And of course it wasn't. And we had three years of just hell reinventing the church. And 300 people left the church. 300 in two years, elders, leaders, deacons, people we needed, good people, not bad people, good people that just couldn't stomach the idea anymore of coming to church and not feeling safe. Because I loved it. Because our church was way too safe. And I knew that because every Sunday, as I looked at our church more objectively, which is hard to do as a pastor. I would psych up every Sunday to come to our church in my mind as a visitor and think, I'm going to find out coming as a visitor, what is it that I can, that I can say to our church that's obvious, but I can't see it because I'm too close. But if I can see things objectively that they also can't see, that I can point out. So every Sunday, 
when we'd come to meet, people would come, put their bags, their coats, their car keys, their house keys, their belongings on, under the chair where they would be sitting for the service, then go off and have a coffee and fellowship with people and so on before the service, then after the service, do the same thing, just leave their stuff and take off. We had done it, my family, all of our lives. And I kind of realized 25 years in, this behavior is the biggest indictment against us. This is an inner city church that I'm talking about, a rough inner city. So if we would all leave our most precious belongings unguarded in a room, where else in our week would we do that? We wouldn't. So why are we doing it in the church building? It's got to be because we feel so safe here, which has got to be the biggest indictment against us. So when I started bussing people in and stuff started going missing, everybody every week from then on the floors were spotless. People would sit holding their stuff, watching the bus people, as they became called, those bus people. It'll be those bus people. Those bus people. Keep an eye on those bus people. It was a term that the middle class, play it safe Christians invented to, to stereotype what being a bus person meant. First bus I ever brought in was five people, a minibus. Five people came on it. Mum, dad, three boys. That morning I introduced them. This is March 1999. Already we're in trouble in the church. People are leaving. I'm dealing with drama. I'm fighting every week with the church mafia. <laughs> every church has got them, trust me. <laughs> Controlling people who have a, have a vested interest in things not changing in case they become disenfranchised in the change. So, every week I'm battling with these people as I'm bringing in these hundreds of people eventually. But the first family that came, I said, I started running buses and, you know, this family came today. Could you stand? And I mentioned where they were from, Buttershaw Estate. The name Buttershaw Estate would strike terror into the hearts of any middle-class people. Because none of our church lived there, drove by there, knew anybody there. We only knew of it by reputation. And so the fact that people in our building that were from there just made the whole thing. So I had the family stand, mum, dad, three boys. There was this like half-hearted clap like, are you kidding me? Are you thinking of bringing these people into our church? Was the unspoken apathy in that weak clap. You know, you could... It, it, even, even the clap has a voice. So that family came the next week and brought more with them and so on and so on until it snowballed to hundreds a week. Started to come because people were leaving in droves. By the way, that first family, mum, dad, three boys, the mum and the dad became two of our most brilliant staff members the oldest boy of the three boys became one of my son-in-laws. So that first bus brought more blessing than I ever anticipated and educated me to who else may get on those buses that our church desperately needs that we wouldn't look to bringing from that part of our city because we were too narrow-minded. 
When any church grows with people like the ones that are already there, and you have to be aware of this as a church, when we keep growing with people like us, it usually tells you the church's, the church's love and the church's inclusion is driven by comfort, not compassion. When a church grows, when a church grows with different kinds of people, it tells you that people have a larger circle of love that includes people different to them. And that they're not threatened by difference. They celebrate difference. And because our church now is like, it's like that, that scene in the first Star Wars movie, that, that bar room scene, <laughs> when all the different species from the universe were in that room, in that bar. Our church is like that now. Uh, but it didn't used to be. We're going down thousands of dollars a month. We're losing as people stop tithing because they're leaving. The building financial pledges were all being removed. So the whole building project is now in crisis because people are removing and taking with them their financial pledges, which we now cannot rely on. So we went into financial freefall too. In the late 90s, early 2000s, where I found strength and comfort and wisdom from this passage I just read to you today. I was running to get a plane in Chicago airport. I trained myself by the early 2000s to do something I'd never done. I trained myself to buy a book based on the title. I only ever read books that were recommended to me by people I knew and trusted their recommend. Recommending books is difficult to do because the significance of a book is not the book. It's the timing with which you read the book. So a book is significant not because of the book. I've read the same book twice in a year. First time, I thought, that's rubbish. Second time, it was brilliant, but the book hasn't changed. But what I was looking for changed, and I'd shift it to a place where the book became vital, where it wasn't a year earlier because I wasn't in a place to need what the book had. I train myself to buy a book based on the title, and I would encourage you to do the same thing. The worst thing is you waste a few books. I've done that now for years and read hundreds and hundreds of books, many of which I couldn't even remember the title of the book, and I couldn't recommend it to you. But within that book, I suspect that there may be an idea. And sometimes in one entire book, there's just one page or one paragraph in the whole book that was why I picked the book up. But I had to go through it to find that gem that I thought was implicit in the title as to why I bought it. I was running through the airport at Chicago and I saw a book called The Cathedral Within. The Cathedral Within by a guy called Bill Schoen. S-H-O-N-E. It's a secular book. And I wondered, I picked the book up because... I was fascinated by this concept of the cathedral within. What the book taught me was, and you may or may not know this about cathedrals, because you don't have many of them here. I mean, proper, proper cathedrals now, okay. <laughs> um, on average, it took two to five hundred years to build a cathedral. Two hundred to five hundred years. I'm fascinated by how did the priests, how did the leadership keep people involved in something financially that they'd never see finished? 
not only they wouldn't see finish, but none of their lineage would ever worship in that building. I know how hard it is to keep people involved financially in something that will take a year. If these guys said to you, we've got a project, it's going to be 200 years, this building, please give generously. Are you kidding me? You mean we never get to see this finish? You mean we never get to benefit from this? Are you kidding me? And what the book taught was that the priests, knowing what I'm telling you now may be a problem, they encouraged the people in the church at that time to start small businesses. Those small businesses generationally became large businesses, and generation those large businesses financed the cathedrals. And the book asked the question, if you are a donation-dependent organization, which every church is, every charity is, and suppose those donations for whatever reason dry up, in our case, because I wanted to reinvent the church, not knowing a lot of money would not go with us into that future then those donations stop, then you're in trouble. So you need to have some other form of income besides being dependent on donations. Because if you as a leader decide to take the church in a direction that people don't like, the first thing they'll do is they'll try and hit you and control you with their money. So I finished the book and I'm thinking like day in, day out, what, what, could, what do we have that we could make money off? What can we sell anything? And I just thought, I don't know. And, and I'm stood thinking about this midweek uh, in our coffee shop that we newly finished in this 2,000-seater, trying to think, what could we do? What could we do? Never thinking. This building sat empty all week. Wow, this is an asset. We could rent this out. So I started a business renting out our, our buildings to secular business. I started that in 2005. Uh, it brings in a huge amount of money every year. Now we have repeat clients that come every year to us. Uh, we've had Nike, we've had Nissan, we've had Google uh, rent our building. Uh, huge money because we're in the north, Many of these venues that people rent are in London, which is two or three times the price that we would charge in the north. So we've got a lot of business because of the rates we can offer. Nissan came to launch their Nissan Juke, their uh, little SUV, as they say in America, Nissan Juke, launched that vehicle in Europe in our building for a two-week rental, and they brought Every two days they brought in staff from Spain, then the French, then the Germans came in and flew into our building to be educated on the vehicle. But Nissan were the first people ever to ask us, can we leave our vehicles there on Sunday in your auditorium? We, we're not going to be there, but we don't want to drive them out and drive them in again Monday morning. So we know it's going to be an upheaval to you guys. So that Sunday, we went into the original 700-seater, had more multiple services to fit people in, Huge inconvenience, but the Japanese paid us $75,000 for us not to use that building that day. I'm like, well, we'll deal with that. We'll get over it. <laughs> so whilst the church were disappointed and struggling, when I said to them, hey, 
just suck it up because the Japanese are financing our church today. And when I think we talk about the wealth of the wicked coming to the church, I don't think we think it looks like that. But, but why wouldn't it look like that? Um, so I started that business. It's still today the biggest income stream that we have. Um, and I started five other businesses in that same year, two or five, two or six. Started five other businesses, all of which became more income than the giving. Because I figured that <clears throat> what I had in my heart to do would not be finished in my lifetime. And I also figured that whoever takes over from me in that church should not be held to ransom by the manipulation of people's finances. That whilst we don't want to lose anybody and we don't want to take for granted anybody's giving and we need every dollar people would want to give and donate, that that should never again become a defining issue for why or why we don't do something and so this idea of having something in your heart that you know you'll never see finished came to me from that book inspired me to start businesses that would finance us long into the future that was not dependent on whether people liked or not what we were doing and gave us a freedom and a degree of independence financially from that control and from that dependence on donations And I began to think and teach and speak to the people in the church and around the world about having what I called a cathedral in your heart, about giving your life for something that you know you will never live to see finished. And that's what you're doing in this church. That's what every church should be doing. Having a generational, long-term mindset about what you're doing here in this church. A willingness to plant trees under whose shade you know you will never sit yourself. But your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids, as it were spiritually, might live to sit under those trees. But you know the moment you decide to do that thing and buy that building and involve in that idea you know that you're really never going to live to see it come to fruition in the way that you know it can, but probably realistically realize it won't in your lifetime. Now, bearing in mind, this is why this is so difficult for us, and it is. I was raised, many of you by your age group, not so much, but there there are still deposits of this mentality in the charismatic Pentecostal churches. We'd broadly fall into that tribe. We're happy to fall into that tribe on most days. Um, We grew up, our tribe, your heritage, I suppose if I could use that term, is a final generation mentality heritage. I grew up believing that our generation would be the one that would see the return of Christ. What that did to us was, it robbed us from being generational thinkers. So much so, we didn't even insure our stuff. Because to insure your stuff was to have an attachment to the world um, that we shouldn't have because we're going to be raptured out of here any day. Seriously. 
We had theology for this. We deeply believed it. We deeply wanted it. But that, that uncoupling from the world gave us a degree of arrogance. Then we'd make movies. Hollywood would make movies and Christians would try and finance movies and put out music that emphasized the fact that we're all going to get raptured to heaven and all the rest of you are going to go to hell if you don't you know, turn or burn to call it what it used to be called. And I grew up with this final generation mentality and it caused us to live in the moment and to live for now and to not think and plan and decide and invest and build in ways that we knew would be beyond our lifetime. I think our modern day equivalent of that, by the way, is we have a revival mentality. What I mean by that is that we believe that in our lifetime there's going to be this great end time move of God that will suddenly cause millions to sweep into the church and will release us from this slog of trying to get people saved and this slow growth and three steps forward, two steps back kind of feel. And there'll be a word wild, wild revival amongst the unchurched that will flood into this building and this building won't be big enough and neither will the next one because there'll be a supernatural awakening, move of God. I don't know whatever language you have heard or you use. Well, 40 plus years, uh, 45, 46 years now, I've been a Christian. This revival has not arrived and shows no sign of arriving anytime soon. Churches that have prayed and fasted and believed for this end time move of God and have gone to the grave never seeing it, but passed on that behavior to their kids, are getting open to a new idea because it's not happening. So we that are leading the church have to ourselves be open to a new idea because that revival mentality, or in my generation, that final generation mentality, um, caused us to believe that it would all end with us. And to whatever degree, to whatever degree we may believe it all ends with us, it's dangerous. Because what if it doesn't end with us? What are we creating as a legacy? What are we, what is our long-term generational thinking? How are we training and equipping people that are going to outlive us? And I had to settle down in the late 90s, settle down, uncouple from that end time thing and settle down to realize if we are going to impact this city it will not be some random from heaven visitation of God it will be a community of people who commit to decades of loving this town that's it and if there's anything coming from heaven we don't know about it's the icing on the cake, but it's not the cake. We're the cake. But what we've done is we've made revival the cake, and we're the icing. So, 
there's only so much we can do and it's so weak and pitiful and unless God comes through and unless God shows up and unless all this language we use. I think we pray sometimes and I have for years in those early years when I knew no better. I still hear people pray and talk in a way that makes me wonder. It's as if we think heaven has something better than Jesus. That God is holding out on us somehow. There is this divine holding out on the earth. And that maybe our generation will be the ones that are holy enough and hardcore enough to wrestle from God's reluctant hand this end time outpouring that other generations believed for but never saw happen. But we'll be the ones that see this end time revival. Every generation has had its own version of what I'm telling you now. As if, as if heaven still has something <laughs> that is yet to come. I'm just here to tell you there isn't anything in heaven better than Jesus. There's no second son hiding behind the throne. There's no better idea than Jesus on the cross. So I, I, I think, what is it that we think is coming? And, and here's what I want you to see. Whilst we are thinking and believing that way, you're not getting any younger. And in a, in a sense, we are constantly devaluing the contribution we might have to make now because we think then something's going to come that's bigger and better and more amazing than little old me. So we, we say, oh God, move. And we pray for a move of God. Never once thinking, you, you are the move of God. And we, we talk to God as if all of this stuff that you are loaded down with since birth, all of the genius, all of the amazing gift set, your amazing personality, all of your weirdness and quirks and craziness, all of that amazing stuff, as I said earlier, that makes you, 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 are the best idea that God ever had. You are. And yet, we relate to him as if there's someone else or something else. And don't look internally and don't think we've got anything to contribute. And it's that shift that I made in the late 90s from constantly looking to God because it was like a Mexican standoff between God and the church. It's like this cosmic chess match where the church are at their side of the table saying, it's your move. And God's at his side of the table saying, it's not my move. I moved 2,000 years ago. I've got nothing else left. I give it my best shot. I've got nothing else left. Ever since then, it's been your move. And yet for generations, the church has still parked up waiting for a move of God. 
This resulted in us having this temporary mentality. Living for now. We had a period in Europe called the Dark Ages. 13, 14, 15th century. The Dark Ages. It was called the Dark Ages because there was no trace of God doing anything in society. Then we had the Renaissance where there was this awakening in people's hearts and minds to be empowered and to make a difference in their life. And then God began to move through that renaissance mentality of people open to a new idea and people becoming spiritual, people getting empowered and believing that they're on this planet for something more than just existence and being oppressed by the, what, those that had over the have-nots. And our history throughout Europe and history tells us that the X factor, the unquantifiable unknown X factor... Is us. It's us. It's not God. The things that make a difference in history cannot be the things that don't change. Because you can't look there for a clue. Well, was God more loving? Was God more gracious? Was God more intervening? Is that the clue? No, God's been the same in every generation. His heart's just the same now as it was 300 years ago towards the earth. And so... When we see God doing amazing things around the earth, I know we get paranoid about, you know, it's not me, it's just Jesus. I get that. But I want you to understand that history owes just as much to a move of people as it ever does to a move of God. Because it's the same thing. And if I mention names in Scripture, you only know what happened around that person because of that person. And whatever your contribution on your watch is in this city and this country will be down to the caliber of you. You know, the next year, couple of years in this church could be the most amazing, off-the-charts season this church has ever, ever had. But what am I surprised you to know is that it's far less to do with God than you think it is. Are more to do with you. You know what I'm telling you now? Heathens understand this more than we do. Because they're just getting on with it. They're taking risks and they're investing and they're building kingdoms and empires without God. What they've done is they've engaged with these amazing gifts that they've got. They don't, they don't thank God for it. Maybe some of them do when they receive their Oscar. Just th thank the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> But there's an awareness in them that they're blessed with a gift set and then they're putting it to use from day one. And they're hustlers and movers and shakers and all the rest of it and the way that they do things may not be our way. But the point is, they are in motion. And if I've, if I've discovered anything about God in life, it's that God is drawn to movement. God does not like stationary things or stationary people. And we've had a church parked up for generations Praying for a move of God, like that chess game. And God's like, it ain't my move. You are my move. I sent you. You are it. And the clock's ticking. And I realized that. I mean, I'm 25 years in. And then I start sending buses to bring people in. And we had, we had a major move of God. But God didn't send the bus, God didn't get on the bus. God didn't drive the bus. God didn't finance the bus. 
But this wasn't God's idea. That's why I want you to see this amazing line in Solomon's prayer. Because Solomon said, God said, since the day I brought my people from Israel, Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city. I didn't choose a tribe within Israel to build me a temple. I chose David. In other words, it might shock you to know this. You should know this is in the Bible. The temple was not God's idea. He didn't want a temple. He didn't need a temple. He's bigger than a temple. The temple was David's idea. And David didn't even get that idea from God, as far as we know. The Bible says that David was in his mansion that was built before the temple. And all his enemies were subdued. And David's chilling, flicking TV in his mansion. And David called Nathan, his kind of mentor, prophet. I said, Nathan, Nate, Nat. I am having a ball. All my enemies are subdued. I've got years of my life left. I'm healthy. You know what? I've been thinking this is bad. I want God to have a great place like I've got a great place. I want to build a temple. I think, I think that tabernacle thing, I think, is done. I just want to build this amazing building for God. A temple. And, 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 and literally, this is how I think it went down. Literally, Nathan, when you read, when you read this, this interaction, literally Nathan went, high five, dude. Do it. That's all Nathan said. Nathan said, cool. Do what's in your heart, David. That's why I believe Solomon said, God said, I didn't choose, I didn't choose a city or a place or a tribe to build me a temple. I didn't ask for a temple. What I did do is I chose David. And David had a temple in his heart. I want you to see that, that God would much rather edit your flow than create it. But he just wants you to get on with it. Well, Lord, is it your will? Stop it. Is it A? Or is it B? Is it right? Or is it left? What's your will, Lord? And God's like, please. The blessing of God isn't right or left. God's blessing isn't A or B. It's on you. And if you choose A, God will bless you. And if B would have been a better choice, doesn't matter. What matters is that you made a choice and you're in motion. And I'm telling you, if you make the wrong choice from a good heart, God can get you back from anywhere that takes you. Just like my children. I would rather my children make decisions. This what would Jesus do thing we had, bracelets, was invented by stationary Christians who, who, are, who, are from, who are from the primary school of divine guidance that most Christians are in. The philosophy of that school is, I don't move without God's guidance. That's the philosophy. I don't decide, I don't commit, I don't involve, I don't invest without God's guidance, which sounds like something we all should have said about us. Until you hear the philosophy of the second school of divine guidance, which is 
undersubscribed and should have more of us in it. And I've spent years in the first one, and I've now spent the last 15 years in the second one. The second one's better. Because the philosophy of the divine guidance school I'm in now is not, I don't move without divine guidance. It's, I don't expect divine guidance until I move. Because I've realized God is drawn to motion. The steps of a good man are ordered by God. What part of steps are we missing? Steps is a metaphor for movement and progress and attempting things. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, David said. Though he fall, he will not stay down because God upholds him. So David again is trying to find a language to let us know that God is drawn to movement. And I want you to know that from this passage, God said, I chose David and David had stuff. You've got stuff. These pastors have got stuff in their hearts. You know, I built that 2,000 seater building. I reinvented that church. Went through hell on earth for three years. Lost 300 people. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. During that time, I'm committing to build this 2,000 seater building. On the day we moved in, January 2000, we went into that new building with 300 people in a 2,000 seater. I never asked God about any of that stuff. I cannot hand on heart say God told me to do any of it. My philosophy was, you better just stop me then. If you don't want me to do it, stop me. But I'm going to do this. Some of you are like, David never asked God about building a temple. And so Solomon's, Solomon's take on that is, God didn't ask for a temple. God didn't choose a place or a tribe to build him a temple. He chose David. And David had a temple in his heart. And out of that heart came this desire. Now he finished up financing it, but not building it. And of course it went on beyond his life. But God said to David, you're not going to build the temple. But God took the time to say to him, but it's awesome. I think it's amazing, David, that you had something in your heart that you know you're never going to see finished, but you had it in your heart anyway. God is drawn to people, saved or unsaved, that have generational thinking in their lives. God loves people and is drawn to people and assists people who have community, society, well-being in their hearts beyond their lives. You know, Sanballat and Tobiah, it says were very disturbed someone had come to promote the welfare of Israel. History is only disturbed when someone comes to intervene. So when our church starts intervening in those council estates, all hell broke loose in the church, not in the city, in the church, with the religious people. But we've gone on since then to reach tens of thousands of people, feed and clothe and educate and rescue and deliver 
and patch up and heal and befriend and love thousands and thousands of people who didn't know we existed or couldn't care less we existed. But we loved them, we prayed for them, but we didn't go to them. Sambala and, and Tobiah were not disturbed that someone cared about the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah wasn't the only guy who knew about the problem. But he was the only guy who showed up. And through him, something happened that we now call a move of God. But analyze it. It was something that started in his heart while he worked as a refugee for a foreign king. And in that king's employment, he gets the message from home saying, Jerusalem's a disaster, it's a mess. And it said he, he broke down and he wept. Well, the guys that told him the news are not breaking down and weeping. We don't know their names. So the, the hearing of the problem had this effect on him that was the first clue. If it affects him like that, the chances are this guy is going to do something. He's upset. Then he risks his life being sad in front of the king. Then he risks his life again by asking the king to help him and finance it and send him with letters to permit him to go and do what he's got to do. I mean, and, and that's why these guys are now concerned. That, I mean, their, their description was not someone's come to rebuild the walls. That's not what they said about him. He's come to promote welfare. That's what they said. And I'm telling you, the devil is not bothered that you care for this city. Big deal. That you pray for this city. Big deal. You're only going to get registered on the radar of history when we do something about it. Which is not these pastors' job. They're just a part. They may give a leading voice or a leading edge to what we all do, to what you do. But I'm looking at the next move of God. Whatever God does in this city in the next 20 years is already here. It's in this room. And in the hearts of thousands of Christians in this city, it's already here. It's not coming from heaven. It's not to be prayed down. It's already here. It's in you. That's why I did that USB on saw with your strength because I've got to help you figure out why are you here what are you brilliant at because that's the move of God God didn't choose Sydney God didn't choose Sydney to start Hillsong he didn't have a place or a town or a city God just spoke to people and they just did something attempted something who knows could have all been a failure could have been a memory could have been you remember that church Hillsong years ago and it didn't last long, did it? And it could have been that, or it could have never been known of. But somebody started doing stuff, and, and clumsily, and weakly, and poorly, but did stuff. And God thought, I like that guy. I like those people. They're having a go. And, and, and stuff starts to get disturbed, because someone intervenes. Someone shows up. And I just wonder as we close, what, what is the cathedral in your heart? What is it in your heart that you know you'll never see finished, but you're going to give your life to it anyway? 
You're going to finance it, commit to it, love it, volunteer for it, support it, embrace it, give leadership to it, give heart to it, and soul to it. Even though you know we're going to enjoy some of this, but we're not going to see it come to its ultimate level in our lifetime. And so whether what's in your heart is a cathedral or a pop-up church, history will only tell that. Generationally infused thinking. Content knowing you will not be there at the completion is rare in people, especially in the church. Well, thanks again for listening to today's podcast. I hope you found it beneficial. And uh, I know time is precious commodity for us all, but I would love it if you would take the time to write a review or comment. And above all, maybe subscribe to my podcast channel. Thank you.